Hey everyone, this is Bitupan here. Welcome to the show. I hope you are doing great. Much is known about the Afghanistan's political turmoil, and that is the main reason this country has been in the news for the longest time. However, not much has been spoken about the LGBTQ rights in this war-torn country. My today's guest is Neemat Sadat, who is an Afghan origin person to openly come out as gay and campaign globally for LGBTQ rights. Sadat is a prominent activist and journalist currently based in Washington DC. He was the first person from Afghanistan to come out openly as gay which started through one of his posts shared on Facebook. There has been no looking back for Sadat ever since. Despite the numerous death threats he received for being Muslim and proudly gay, despite being disowned by his father, he continues to make his voice heard as he campaigns for LGBTQ rights amongst Muslim communities worldwide. Sadat was an assistant professor of political science in the American University in Afghanistan, from where he secretly mobilized a gay movement off campus, but was then persecuted by the Afghan authorities and deemed a national security threat for allegedly subverting Islam. During the Soviet war, when he was only 8 months old, his family, like many educated elites, left Afghanistan. He moved from Kabul to Germany with his parents as a baby. Later, the family resettled in the US when he was just 5 years old. He is a highly educated person. He has earned 6 university degrees including graduate degrees from Harvard, Columbia and Oxford. He previously worked at ABC News Nightline, CNN's Farid Zakaria's GPS and UN Chronicle. The Carpet Weaver, which is his first novel, is a tale of a young gay man's struggle to come out of age and find love in the face of brutal persecution. Sadat had to go through a lot of rejections in trying to publish this book. He approached many publishing agents, but it was rejected more than 450 times from agents in the United States and UK. Finally, it was accepted by a Delhi-based agent and the book was out in India. It has not only earned him critical acclaim, but also gave him a strong fan base in India. He came to India and did several interviews with print, TV journalists, radio jockeys and Bollywood celebrities. He took part in literary festivals at Mumbai, Delhi and Kolkata and spoke at various college functions. I am excited to talk to him and hear his story. Let's get started. Okay, so we will quickly talk about your book first then I am also interested to know about your own story. But before that, let me know uh, what is the, why is the name Carpet Weaver? How did you decide about the name? And first of all, why did you even decide to write a book? And also talk about uh, the character Kanishka. How did you decide the name Kanishka? That's great. Well, the name Kanishka was the first thing that came to my mind, even before I penned the first word. 
Um, You know, he is a gay ex-Muslim who becomes a Maoist. So, um, you know, some, this is a book about not only, you know, religious, sexual, and political persecution based on those labels. Mm -hmm. And I felt that the name Kanishka was very important because I was trying to recapture Afghanistan's glorious, um, you know, this golden age of, of this paradise loss of Afghanistan, where you had more of a multicultural of Afghanistan that you, you're familiar about when you study Afghanistan's history. But also, Kanishka the Great in ancient times was one of the leaders of the Hoshan dynasty who ruled over what is today, you know, um, modern day Afghanistan. So a lot of people don't know that, that, you know, Afghanistan before Islam was ruled by Hindu and Buddhists and pagans and Zoroastrians for that matter. Actually, Zoroastrian was, it was a part of the Persian empire where it was founded in Badakhshan. So I thought that that's what I try to do in this book to show the rich cultural heritage that has been reduced to, you know, bombs, burqas, and bomb blasts, particularly the narrative, the Anglo-American narrative after September 11th terrorist attacks Mm, to justify militarism and occupation of my homeland. Um, And, you know, the proxy wars that this book covers. So I felt that that was very important. The carpet weaver, I felt that the story about, you know, the carpet weaver is so essential, not only as a metaphor for bringing Afghanistan's history and culture and literature and poetry. This is the carpets have been in Afghanistan, and not just Afghanistan, but Persian Empire. Like there's the first carpet that was made, I think, 2,500 years ago. It was founded and trapped in a sheet of ice. And when they dated it, they found that it was from millennium ago, but it found Persian influences. Uh, and so this is part of Afghanistan's history. This is how culture is transmitted from one generation to the next. Because, you know, Afghanistan, only modern times do we have high rates of literacy. Mm-hmm. But culture was communicated either orally or uh, through carpets. So, and I felt like this is a very important to really understand Afghanistan through the carpets. Carpets at this time period were the backbone of the economy. It was the greatest export. Uh, it was a luxury good, but it was also like a workforce. It was the largest uh, employer. People who worked not only as carpet weavers, but worked within all the industries filled by carpets. Uh, all right, great story. So were you not scared of writing something so controversial? Yes, uh, I, I was scared of writing something that wasn't controversial. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Is, is that I, I'm, I am, people call me a shock jock uh, because of the, the very dramatic way I came out of the closet mm-hmm. and the announcement that the proclamation that I made on Facebook and stuff mm-hmm. and how I'm telling a message, you know, wagging my fingers, telling all the aunties and uncles who've been asking me when I'm going to marry a woman to, to stop it or and to start asking me if, if, if they're going to ask me about my personal life, then they should be offering their son or their nephews for my for handed marriage to be uh, my husband, you know, so very, very, very provocative. Um, and in, in a way, I feel like, you know, when I did my creative writing program, um, my, my director of the program at Oxford University, Claire Morgan said, you know, you should write a book that this is a book that, that the world can simply not do without, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, why am I writing a book if it's just, just going to be another book that might have a short life, short uh, shelf life, or that it's just, continuing all the same narratives that are already out there. I felt that I needed to create a new narrative, like right from this, the perspective of this other, challenge the dominant narrative, the dominant narrative. You know, when Kanishka is 
is narrating the story and I'm writing and, you know, using this vehicle, he's not really caring about the Islamic gaze or the white gaze or mm-hmm. the communist gaze or anybody's gaze. You know, he's speaking against all the different forces that want to keep him down and or somebody like him keep them, you know, um, you know, throughout history that they've not been able to have a voice they've not had visibility. And so Kanishka is really a vehicle for the hundreds of millions of LGBTQIA people across the Muslim world in the 68 countries, for that matter, where they're still criminalized and don't have a legal status mm. and they're living in open air prison. And also the apostates, people who don't believe in the, the faith of their culture, of their society, of their family, and they want to exit that and they can't because they know that they'll be shunned and there'll be a lot of shame behind that and maybe even persecution. So I felt like, you know, this is a story that needs to be told, that has to be told. Like, when have you read about a gay ex-Muslim character in literature or movies? Never. So mm-hmm. I felt like I was doing something revolutionary, something that was laying the, found, uh, the foundation for future generations can refer to and can really open up the doors for other narratives to come out. Um, because it's, mine's not the only story. Of course, there's many other people who want to be able, but they maybe haven't had the, the, the chance or the privilege in life that I've been afforded to be able to tell the story. So since or, you came out into the public, so you must have uh, met you, many lesbians also must have contacted you and transgenders must have contacted you from Afghanistan. Is it so? Oh, absolutely. Many from Afghanistan, of course, mm. and they still continue to contact me, but even from many other countries. I mean, I even had... Uh, you know, when El Mundo of Spain covered my story about being, you know, the first Afghan to come out so publicly, I received messages like from people in southern Spain, in Mexico, in Argentina, telling, and these are very, very open liberal countries. I mean, Mexico, uh, LGBT is enshrined in the constitution, their rights. They're more progressive than the United States for that matter. <laughs> you know what I mean? And in Spain, you know, it was one of the first countries to legalize gay marriage. And they're telling me, you have people telling me that in these kind of places, they're telling me like, oh my God, I still haven't had the courage to come out. And you've come out in Afghanistan, like this is so empowering. And of course, the stories never end enough from Afghanistan. People continue to message me, asking me to help them to seek a safe haven in Europe or some other country, third country. Um, and uh, you know, to basically go to either India or Turkey so that they can file for asylum to go to a Western country or, you know, somehow get a passage to, and I, you know, I'm only one person. I, I can't carry all of Afghanistan's mm-hmm. burden. Can you, I mean, I don't have the resources. What I've done, you know, um, what I'm doing is basically trying to empower LGBT people, both through my activism and now through my art, um, to basically create visibility. No one, and I've, we've moved the conversation so much that no one is saying that, LGBT people don't exist in this culture. Like that's nobody, it's like nobody's in that. Like, so we've moved the pendulum, we've moved the conversation forward. But I think that it's also, you know, you know, I'm seeing more LGBTQI people come out in exile. Uh, once they reach a safe haven in Germany and in other countries, now they're starting to come out and share their narratives, be interviewed by the Western press, go on social media, do what I, you know, what I did. Um, other other people are doing that, so that's great news. Um, and of course, the same. Those those that's how that's how what happened in India, and, and you know, it didn't just happen 
where one person came out and then India, the, the section 377, you know, was, it was many people over a course of a generation or more generations who basically laid the foundations of that to happen. Mm. So how is this uh, current relationship with your family members and parents? Has your parents accepted you? And how is the relation now? Yeah, well, you know, I've said before that, you know, my, even when I came out to my parents in 2010, they still wanted to, you know, me to like force marriage upon me and marry the opposite sex. And they told me to keep it a secret. And of course I didn't until 2013, I announced it to the world. Mm. And, you know, I've been estranged from my father, but, you know, uh, because the terms he wanted to, for me to keep a relationship with him was to not become an activist, not like to basically go back into the closet and to not publish books. And this is my dream. This is not just for me. And to be able to, uh, you know, to, to live my life as I wish to see it. But it's also trying to leave a legacy for other LGBTQIA people around the world who don't have a voice and mm. um, maybe find a source of inspiration. Many people in India uh, who write me from all over the country, from Uttar Pradesh, uh, from Vivari, from the south of India, from the east and the west, from all parts of India, telling me that they've read this book and it's inspired them uh, to basically pursue their dreams and, and like basically to not give up and just keep continuing. So I, I, I basically sacrificed my relation with my father based on that because, of, because it's, it's just I'm not going to go on those terms. Um, and of course, I've, I keep a relationship with my mother. I'm at my mother's house right now in quarantine during this pandemic. Okay. So let's talk about a book. Uh, I read in interviews uh, that your book was being rejected for... Yeah, it's, a, it's such a beautiful book. It was being rejected by 450 agents before, right? Uh, before actually the Delhi-based agent uh, agreed to do that. So what were these uh, agents saying? What reasons did they used to say when they rejected you? Oh, that's a very good question. Um, yes, the question that the basically very few would give like detailed reasons why. Hmm. But the ones that did, they would basically be on the lines like, you know, they couldn't fall in love to the writing at the line level, hmm. which basically is a polite way of saying like there's no literary merit. Hmm. Or they're saying like, oh, you know, it's a great story, great narrative, but... I really don't know how we're going to market this. I really don't see mm. who, how we're going to classify this book in a bookstore or like who's going to be the audience, which basically is a polite way of saying, you know, this book has no market potential mm. and which is seriously shows uh, how much um, that the, the, even, you know, the, the gatekeepers in, in the agent and publishing world in New York and London, uh, they're mostly liberal, okay? So even the, among the liberals, they're still within that that, near, that that paradigm. And there could be many reasons. I mean, I, I can only speculate I, that because of the controversy, they thought they didn't want to be another victim because many people who, who for example, represent Salman Rushdie, uh, you know, carried his books, his agents, translators, were, fell victim for, for, you know, their involvement and relationship with the satanic verses. And, um, and to this day, you know, it's censored, I think in India, it's still censored, right? So in many Muslim countries. So um, I think that may have something to do with it too. Um, also, this book is not politically correct because it questions, uh, you know, the totalitarian f nature of political Islam. And uh, well, Islam, I believe, is political, but in a sense that, you know, when it doesn't allow somebody like Kanishka to come out into the open and live a free life, right? But what's really interesting is that, you know, so I think that because of 
the Islamophobia that's happening. And I, I really like to distinguish between Islamophobia and anti-Muslim bigotry, mm. because I think that um, I'm, I'm people perceive me to be Muslim because I still have a Muslim name when I grow full beard and, you know, people like I come, they perceive me to be that way. And I've been also looked with suspicion, questioned, you know, my loyalty just because I'm a Muslim, but, but I'm an ex-Muslim. Like I don't even believe and practice the religion or believe, but still I've, I've, I've been victim before of, of, of bigotry. So I'm also against that. I don't want bigotry towards me or any other Muslim for being a Muslim. So, you know, obviously these are factors, but I think for a lot of these liberal gatekeepers, like, oh, I don't want to be involved in that. Like, I don't want to, like, they don't have the courage and the guts to do it. I think Indians have a little bit more sense of realism about what the dangers are at stake. I mean, Indians have been dealing with this issue, both with internally and also with neighbors, you know, with, with, especially with Pakistan, and really understanding that, you know, like publishing this kind of book is not a risky endeavor. It's just, it's not like, I think it's very different than Salman Rushdie's caricature of the prophet and stuff like that. This character is just telling his truth, is telling his story. He's not trying to make poke fun of people. And I think that shows you like India's, um, you know, a lot of the way India is being perceived right now is like this intolerant country towards Muslims and how the Muslims are intolerant in their reaction against Hindu nationalism. And I didn't see that. That's not my world. Of course, it's happening. I'm not saying it's not. But I would say that the Indian Muslim community is way more open-minded than the Muslim community in the Arab world and Afghanistan, even the United States. Many uh, Muslim Americans, for example, uh, you know, will not even come near with me. I mean, they basically like brandish me and like, oh, he's an outsider, like he's not welcome. But when I was in India, for example, I was in Kolkata and I had this Muslim hijabi woman come up to me and say like, oh my God, I bought this book for my daughter to read, uh, 13-year-old daughter, and I really want you to sign it for me. And then she came nice. and I met the daughter, her husband. And then when I was in Chennai, I had another hijabi Muslim woman and her husband, uh, both of them buy my book. And then they, I signed it, we took a selfie together. You know, when I was in Mumbai, I met another Muslim uh, who basically is like such an adoring fan. I was like, oh my God, like, I just have to get, you know, very devout Muslims, but at the same time, they're reading and enjoying my book. And I think that people don't understand that, you know, India is a country that's been dealing with, Indian democracy didn't start from independence. It's very ancient. It goes all the way to the Bronze Age. So tell me more about this 55 uh, city tour to India. So where all, it's a 55 city or 55 days tour, 55 city tours, right? 55 city tour. Yeah. And, and I think because I, I, because I got those 450 rejections, I really wanted to really take a, like, hmm. I came to India and published a book. I really wanted to take advantage of this book of like really make, making a deep cultural imprint. And I found myself at every time that I visited, you know, I saw more and more people getting more excited about it, seeing more number of people wanting to participate um, in, in my book talks and my book events and when I go to LitFest and everything. So I felt, you know what, let me just go to India. And instead of going back and forth uh, from June 9, 2019 till the end of the year, you know, I went on like five different trips and I said, no, this is crazy. I needed to, I basically said for all of 2020, my plan was to move there. And so I started in January the 3rd until March the 3rd, which I had to cut it short because of COVID. And, I'm, I'm, and I will resume this 55 city of book tour 
across India. And then I was going to also go to other countries in South Asia, like Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, Nepal, Maldives, um, and Bhutan, because my, and not go to Pakistan for obvious security reasons. Mm -hmm. And because my book is not available there for trade because of the trade wars. Mm -hmm. But I was planning to go there. And I think that going there and interacting with people makes a huge difference when people meet an author. Like if I were to come to Guwahati and go to, you know, different countries where, you know, generally, unless, you know, there's a lit fest there and they were lucky to invite an author and an author would actually come from international, from abroad, then you really don't get that exp the kind of contact and exposure. But also like, a lot of times when I was touring, a lot of members of the LGBT community, like, 16, 17, 18 years old, and they're telling me, like, you know, you're the first person that I'm telling that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm just like you, you know, I'm gay, I'm bisexual, I'm, I'm trans, and this is my, this is my story, you know, and I think it, it's empowering to hear those stories that they feel like when they see me holding up this book at a lit fest, and, you know, in the heart of Tamil Nadu, or, you know, in, 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 in Kerala. Tamil Nadu? Did you say Tamil Nadu? Tamil Nadu, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and so when they see that, and they're like, wait a minute, like, you know, it's, they connect, you know, they people want to connect, people want to be seen, right? Me holding this book with two, mm. obviously, two men, you know, having this um, forbidden love, it makes them seen, you know, and it makes, you know, having starting conversations, maybe that they wouldn't be able to broach these conversations with their families, but if, if their family's there and I'm talking to them and I'm talking to their kids, and somehow it's like creating, you know, some kind of space for a conversation to happen. So are you writing any more books? Yes, I'm working on my second book, which is called Keeping Up with the Hepburns. I finished the first draft. Hmm. It's about a, um, it's a romantic comedy about a gay vegan spiritual warrior. It's set oh. in, primarily in Washington, D.C. during the Trump era. But the main character also goes to India uh, to gently conquer India with his gay vegan agenda hmm. so before i ask my last question something came up to my mind just wanted to know are you planning to go back to afghanistan in the future or and settle there uh well i not probably settled there but absolutely it's my dream to return back to afghanistan to return back to afghanistan uh, and celebrate um afghanistan having the legalization of LGBTQI rights, same-sex same marriage, that is something I wish to see in my lifetime. And I believe that um, Afghanistan, in my opinion, is one of the most hostile, homophobic countries on the planet. Mm -hmm. If we see uh, this dream of mine happen in Afghanistan, then we'll see it everywhere in the world. Mm. So any, any last message for the viewers? Uh, yes, last message for the viewers about... Oh, yeah, definitely. I would say, you know, right now we're in the middle of this pandemic. Uh, people want to read something. I think that if you want something to really, people want to know, like, how did we get here? You know, how do we, in terms of not only people are reading like biological books, like, you know, Homo sapiens, like read, how did human species evolve here? But I think like the politics of our world, you know, all of the democratic countries right now, are faced with this thrust of authoritarianism that's coming, right? Uh, whether it's India or United States or Brazil or Eastern European countries, it's happening everywhere. So it's like craziness where these countries were had a very, you know, a good solid foundation of democracy that's now being challenged. And I think that you need to read a book like The Carpet Weaver to mm -hmm. show what could happen when different groups come to loggerheads 
and kind of rip the country apart. And it's it's a good like a warning call of like you know that there's more that you know this is the worst case scenario. But something like that, if it could happen in Afghanistan, you know, mm-hmm. a country that was independent that was not begging, uh, you know, you know, wasn't an orphan of the international system that was self sufficient, can be the situation like it got imploded um, after 1978 when the Saar Revolution happened. To this day, it's been a broken country. So mm-hmm. I think for a country as big as India, it's very dangerous because a country like India or China, if there's the kind of chaos and civil war breaks out in these kind of places, mm-hmm. it's going to disrupt the whole planet. I mean, Afghanistan alone has disrupted the whole planet. So viewers, please do read this book. It's going to be an amazing read. And I'm going to put a link of the book below. And you can also find more about Nehmat. Uh, he's very active in social media, right? Uh, yes. Facebook, Instagram, and you can listen to his interviews on YouTube. Uh, so, thank you so much, Mr. Nimad. It was great talking to you. Likewise. All right. Thank you. See you then. Bye bye. See you later. Bye bye. Bye bye.